Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, a weekly geeky squeak of interesting links that have caught my attention and then usually an interview at the end of the show. Spring has sprung here in Berlin. Uh, there are church bells ringing in the background and I don't know how long they're going to go on for. So apologies for that, but I just sort of, you have to start recording at some point. <laughs> um, I am Christian Chiller. You can talk to me at Christian on Twitter or find more contact details at ChristianChiller.com. First, I'll present a series of geek culture links that have interested me over the past week, and we have quite a plethora this time around. And then I have an interview with Jay Kwan of Tendermint, a blockchain project in quote marks. And if you listen to the interview, you'll understand why I present that as quote marks. They don't necessarily think of themselves as a completely 100% conventional blockchain, but I'll leave that up to you to decide when you hear the interview. First, an article on The Guardian from Siren Kale entitled How I Accepted I'm an Introvert and Learned to Refuse Imitations Without Guilt. This was, uh, I don't know, this was an article that caught my eye as part of a series of articles that have come out recently, maybe all on The Guardian, I can't quite remember, about levels of introvert versus extrovert and how maybe our understandings of those terms are not quite what we initially thought that as not, not hardly surprising that introvert and extroverted are not necessarily two extremes, but it's on a scale. Um, and you kind of have almost a pot of extroversion that once exhausted, you need to be an introvert for a while and et cetera. And that was something that I could understand. That's certainly how I feel. Sometimes I feel very sociable and then I just switch off and I just want to be on my own and then I can be fine again the next day. Um, I think the thing that caught my eye the most in this was that I do suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out quite a lot. Um, I do always wish I could accept everything, but sometimes I just don't feel like it. Uh, not to the extremities of the author of this article, but yeah, um, I've been, I've, I didn't necessarily want to jump on the bandwagon of um, disconnecting from social media and not knowing what people are doing and things like that. But um, I do appreciate that that sometimes feels like you, makes you feel like you should be doing more than you really need to be doing. And uh, that can cause some anguish. So the the main um, point of this article, though, is to sort of realise this and to get your friends around you to realise this and not be offended if you always say no to things. And this is difficult. Uh, I think you'd have to have a very strong group of friends that you've known for a long time because if you're always going to say no to things, I mean, how do you ever... Hang out with those people, I guess, is my main uh, issue with this perspective. And it seems partially selfish, maybe, um, that if you always say no, what if those people need you? Um, what if they wanted you to come, etc., etc. So I'm not 100% sure if I really agree with the article itself, but I agree with the discussion around these sorts of issues. And that's why I brought it up and... Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on introversion, extroversion, etc. Next, we're talking about people. This is an extremely long article. Let's see, what does Medium say? 30 minutes. <laughs> uh, by Duncan A. Sabian on how the Magic the Gathering color wheel explains humanity. Um, Magic the Gathering, highly successful card game from Richard Garfield, who's also produced many other games. In fact, he has a new game out now that is on the road to being just as successful, Keyforge. Um, I, I haven't played Magic the Gathering ongoing for quite some time i think the first or second edition 
but also uh, that um, is still remains very, very successful today. And in the game are five colours, and any of you who are sci-fi or fantasy fans will recognise these colours as fairly typical sort of a fantasy and sci-fi tropes, chaos, order, nature, etc., etc. But this article, I mean, I must admit, it's so long, it goes into so much depth. I did switch off a little bit at a certain point. I almost felt like there was too much detail on this that there was strictly necessary. Um, but if if the sound of using a game mechanic, and I would probably guess a reasonably loosely in the first place created game mechanic to explain pretty much the entire human race, then this could be the article for you. But maybe you'll also see see it as a as a slightly trite way of, of treating human psychology. I'm not 100% sure, but it's certainly an interesting read, if a lengthy one. If you know Magic the Gathering or not, it really doesn't matter. He actually has lots of other examples of where the characters on these spectrums can be found in other uh, fantasy, sci-fi, and popular culture references, including some that I didn't actually understand what they were, to be honest with you. Um, but still, so read with trepidation, but read if any of that sounded Interesting to you. Going off at a complete tangent here, and this is not a new article, but the Weekly Squeak is not always about new articles, it's about articles I read in the past week. This was an article on History Extra from Jem Duduku? Dudusu? Not sure if it's a Turkish name, it uh, relates to the topic, so I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce it. Six things you probably didn't know about the Ottoman Empire. Why am I suddenly talking about the Ottoman Empire? Well, uh, um, after our recent trip to Greece, I was reading a lot around the um, Ottoman Empire, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, and those kind of empires that all started to crumble around the beginning of the 20th century. I've been to lots of former areas of the Ottoman Empire, and it's always fascinated me that an, an empire that stood for so long, and yet some of the vestiges of it now are, to me anyway, fairly minor. Things like some common food and drinks, but they all reverted back to Christianity very quickly. Um they went back to their own languages very quickly. Uh, not 100% sure how things were run under the empire, but it always struck me as people moved on very quickly. And that struck me as quite interesting. And Turkey now is a country, much like other countries that have had empires that is sort of coming to terms with its former glory, shall we say, um, and some of the problems in that that can cause in modern culture. So the Ottoman Empire was a large and very long-standing empire, and yet a lot of people don't know too much about it. So I would encourage you to have a read of this if you're interested in history at all. And here's a, here's a couple of my sort of choice uh, things you didn't know from the article. Uh, Ottomans and Turks are not the same. Uh, in fact, the Ottoman Empire was comprised of many, many different cultures. Uh, they took over lots of the regions we now call the Balkans, who are predominantly white um, Sometimes at Christians, so not necessarily Turks, as we may think of them. In their long history, they had plenty of defeats, especially at the hands of Napoleon, who was another big power. So this empire lasted nearly 500 years, from the late 1400s up until the beginning of the 20th century in various leases of life. So, you know, they certainly had their ups and downs. And I guess, again, I reiterate the sheer longevity of this empire, right up to the beginning of the First World War, pretty much. Um, which is quite amazing. And I've just started reading a new book that, that talks about a very particular part of the Ottoman history, so I may have more 
to cover on the subject. So switching back to technology, which is usually my main focus of this podcast, but we haven't had so much so far. Two articles here. One that jumped out at me because it's uh, something that I have mentioned, I think, in the past. And I love kind of sci-fi fantasy interfaces. This is an article from Tom Ward, my real name namesake on Wired. About Well, the title of the article is The Mind Behind Minority Report Giving PowerPoint a Sci-Fi Overhaul. Um, this is uh, an article about John Underkoffler, trying to resist pronouncing it the German way, um, who was responsible for creating a lot of sci-fi and fantasy film interfaces in Hollywood, including the one in Minority Report. And so inspired by this, um, he actually ended up creating a company that has, is attempting to build products just like that. Now, this is interesting because I read a book many years ago that I have recommended, I think, several times on this podcast called Make It So about sci-fi interfaces. And in that book, it claimed that the Minority Report interface uh, was based on a pre-existing project, but that it was impractical because moving your arms above your heart is so exhausting. And uh, and Tom Cruise during filming had to take lots of rests for this. So yes, there was inspiration into this uh, this product, this interface from academia. But I actually thought it was a more active product. It's hard to know. I mean, the book is older than this article, so who knows? Um, but what is interesting is how John uh, Underkoffler has created, ended up working on many uh, products out of his uh, fantasy things that he created in Hollywood, which I find quite fascinating. Is also the sort of main point of this book that I mentioned, the Make It So book, how Hollywood and fiction more broadly, but I guess Hollywood because it's so visual, has inspired real things and vice versa. Um, so I found this this article quite fascinating and how they are now prototyping uh, this kind of um, G-Speak is, is the main uh, project for meetings and presentations in business, which is unfortunately a somewhat boring application of it, but that's where the money is. Um, and the writer actually prototyped this, and it works moderately well so far, so it's, it's, it's quite fascinating. I, I don't know um, how you get over this apparent issue with uh, raising arms above your heart, but um, I guess meetings don't tend to be that long. And maybe it's another impetus to keep meetings short. <laughs> so it can only be a good thing. So if sci-fi fantasy interfaces and their influence on the real world are your thing, then I highly recommend you take a read of this. And finally, an article on One Zero by uh, Jesse Drew Davis, uh, something that is becoming, unfortunately, increasingly relevant to me, an article titled The Planned Obsolescence of Old Coders. Um... And this is something that has been mentioned in the past. This writer is not the first person to bring this up, but how in the discussions of diversity, we often forget one group, and that is age. Um, many companies, not all, do tend to skew to the younger um, crowd. This is not strictly true. I know we have mentioned this on the show before about how some companies the average age is actually in the 40s, not in the 30s or less than 30s, as many people think. But I guess the younger ones tend to get the glory a lot, maybe. I'm not sure if that, I don't know, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Um, and especially as we're now living longer, I mean, a lot of us are now living in countries where pension systems will not support us, uh, pretty much never anticipating having a pension. So I'm kind of prepared to work at least into my 70s, I would guess, 
if not until the very end, um, that uh, we will have to be more open to older people in the workforce. And granted, older people can be stale and set in their ways, but older people can also bring lots of experience. And how we integrate those older people into um, the workforce is effectively. And I guess uh, especially if you're rejoining a workforce after uh, children, after a change of career, etc., how someone who has commitments, a mortgage, children, a lifestyle can progress up a career ladder, um, especially when uh, the tech world is infamous for its flat hierarchies. Often you have to go into management, which is not what everybody wants to do, especially developers who tend to have um, issues with uh, communication, shall we say. Um, Being a manager may not be the best fit for them. So how do you... Hey, how do you fit older people who want more but can also give more into this workforce? And I guess on the flip side, keep that um, older workforce motivated, fresh, up-to-date, inquisitive, etc. I personally know as I'm getting older myself, it's very easy to stay set in your ways and you have to almost force yourself on a regular basis to discover new things and be flexible and change all the time. Uh, So how do we bake that into companies as well without sort of making it sound offensive? That's an interesting topic, actually. Uh, And Kate and I, Kate, my old uh, ex-host from this show, we used to uh, run a charity a long time ago in Australia where we were dealing with um, lots of people who rented in protected housing, government housing, and a vast majority of the people in that housing was older women. Um, And that compounds, obviously, two underrepresented groups into one there, an even bigger kind of problem to counter and to to think about. But yeah, let's not discount age. I have mentioned this many, many times at events, actually, as I'm now increasingly, and I'm not even 40 yet, <laughs> so I'm still I'm nevertheless increasingly the oldest person in the room at uh, many events now. So I'm starting to feel this, and I'm nowhere near some of the people mentioned in this article. So let's start to, to sort of plan for this now, I guess. <laughs> That was my links for the week. We had games and how they match psychology. We had fantasy technology. We had history. We had old people. I mean, we had everything that interests me right now, I would pretty much say. <laughs> and next in the show is an interview I conducted with Jay Kwan of Tendermint. Tendermint and Cosmos are two blockchain-related projects that I've had my eye on for quite some time. So when the interview opportunity came up, I jumped at it. They're, it's interesting, as you'll find in the interview, they're sort of learning a lot from the traditional state machine that is often used in a distributed application and making it fit into the blockchain space and borrowing the positives of both sides and a couple of the negatives, but a lot of the positives. So I would say out of a lot of the projects that I encounter in this space, it's good because they're most aware of their, their history and uh, what they can borrow from existing examples. Um, and that I found quite interesting and quite uh, welcoming. And the company has raised funds. The company has just uh, released uh, onto mainnet, uh, I guess the the blockchain equivalent of um, maybe an alpha or a beta. So they're actually making some good, solid technical and product decisions. And so I found speaking to Jay quite interesting. And I hope you do too. 
my name is Jay. I uh, graduated from Cornell um, with a bachelor's of science in computer science. Um, and uh, and since then, I, I came to Silicon Valley to work on various startup companies. Um, at first, I, I joined Yelp, where I uh, built the Yelp app, and then um, soon after, caught the startup bug and decided to become an entrepreneur. Um, and in 2008, uh, the, the financial crisis happened and uh, got me wondering how we can reimagine the financial system because everything seemed so arbitrary and and um, arguably broken. Um, and 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 later on, uh, around 2013, I discovered Bitcoin, um, uh, and this was right after um, the Snowden revelations uh, when I got interested in cryptography and started hacking on uh, a few crypto projects. So uh, when Bitcoin came around um, to the mainstream, uh, I uh, got really excited and uh, decided I wanted to pursue uh, my career full time there. Um, and, and, and around, you know, it was pretty clear from the beginning uh, by by uh, reading through some of the materials that I found that, that proof of work was projected to become a problem. And so um, I've been uh, doing a lot of trading. Uh, in my spare time, uh, just trying to predict the future and and uh, and just kind of click a bell in my head, uh, rang a bell in my head, and I realized, yeah, Bitcoin. Here, here's a big secret that no one really seems to understand, which is that uh, proof of work uh, needs to be replaced by something else. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, I didn't find anything for a while, uh, uh, and so I was working on an exchange uh, software, but um, but one day uh, reading through. Some of the academic papers behind paywalls. I, uh, I found uh, a set of papers on Byzantine consensus uh, algorithms uh, that that um, laid out uh, all the components necessary to solve the problem. And so I dropped everything and started working on Tendermint, uh, Tendermint in 2014. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's that's my background. The main kind of tagline you see on the Tendermint website when you come to it is. Uh, Byzantine fault tolerant state machine replication or blockchain for short. This obviously will grab people's attention. Um, so, what is Tendermint? Is Tendermint a blockchain? Is it not? Is it an alternative to what? What actually is it, and why would someone want to use it? I guess as a follow up question to that. Sure, um, great question. So, um, Tendermint is. Um, it, it's exactly what it says. It's, it's a Byzantine fault tolerant um, state machine replication uh, engine, um, and, and we say that because we try to, uh, and we have uh, abstracted out the consensus algorithm such that it can be plugged into any state machine. Um, so a state machine, you can think of it as um, maybe uh, just a, uh, it's a deterministic state machine. So it's, it's uh, think of it as a virtual computer that has uh, storage and, and processing capability and some kind of logic. And every time you feed it a, a message or a transaction, it mutates the state somehow, right? So that's the general concept of just about any computer or program. Um, and Tendermint is able to connect to such uh, any such application um, uh, uh, using a, uh, a very simple protocol to, uh, 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 to, to mutate the, the state of that that program. Uh, so uh, how Tendermint works is uh, a Tendermint process 
connects to many other tenement processes um, through the internet. Um, uh, they don't have to be connected point to point. So uh, this works on a gossip level. So they just need to be somehow connected um, weekly. And, um, and, 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 and it's assumed that there's a set of signers who are responsible for coming to consensus about uh, blocks. And in tenement, a block is uh, uh, it's just a, a list of transactions uh, similar to uh, Bitcoin or any other blockchain out there. And um, once a block uh, is finalized, um, tenement will will push the transactions in that block to the application and tell it to process it. The application tells tenement um, the resulting Merkle hash root, uh, and then tenement puts that back into the blockchain. Uh, so uh, it's it's an engine. It's designed so uh, Tenement isn't really a blockchain. It's maybe half a blockchain. It really provides the blockchain structure. Um, it provides peer-to-peer -peer networking, and it has the uh, the Tenement consensus algorithm implemented. It has RPC endpoints, but you still need to provide the application logic. Um, uh, and uh, uh, a really simple way to do that is to build on the Cosmos SDK. Uh, which is a software development kit. Uh, it's a framework that imports Tendermint, so it's got the consensus engine built in there, and uh, it's got a lot of the, uh, the struts needed to really easily create a blockchain application in Go language. So, actually, digging a little bit into the use case here, because I, I can, I think I can go off into two directions from this question. Um, so a lot of distributed applications need a state machine. But if I go to the first page of your documentation, it says uh, Tendermint serves blockchain applications. So um, why only blockchain applications? And could I use this as a state store in non-blockchain applications? Like why, you know, why is this specific to blockchain applications and why couldn't I use it in just a... Um, a microservice, a standard Web2 microservice-based application? Um, I suppose you could, but um, the all, uh, what Tenement designs for is it, it's optimized for, um, for batching transactions into blocks. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a cost to having many signers, uh, mm -hmm. validators. We call them validators. They're equivalent or analogous to Bitcoin miners, mm -hmm. but uh, instead of using proof of work, you're using cryptography to sign off. Um, uh, so think of it as maybe like authenticated raft or something mm -hmm. like that, um, except it's Byzantine file tolerant, not just file tolerant. Um, and, and, and the more signers you have, the more necessarily, the more time it takes to um, gather all those signatures. And so in order to amortize, the time required to come to consensus. Um, it makes sense to batch transactions into blocks, um, and that's why uh, Tenement is implemented as a blockchain, or at least provides blockchain structure. Mm -hmm. So uh, one could use Tenement um, on a single node. Um, it'll it'll work fine uh, on a single node, um, uh, but uh, you know you may not care for. The, the the latency yeah. because uh, it's optimized for there being many signers. You could also run it with two, three, um, but you wouldn't get any Byzantine fault tolerance out of it until you get uh, you have four nodes that are um, that are replicated. 
Okay, sure. That makes complete sense. <laughs> it's probably a leading question. I mean, yeah, that, that's always the um, the unique selling point. That, Sorry? That was the easy question. Yeah. Well, it, it's the, always the unique selling point of a blockchain, in quote marks, is for that uh, more finessed uh, validator, as you call it, model, whereas um, other consensus algorithms are more just about checking We've got a consensus here, not necessarily validating the the consensus in the same way as a blockchain. Maybe that's uh, yeah. Um, so the follow up question to that is: so is Tendermint a a private or public in quote marks blockchain? Ooh, okay, um, interesting question. So um, uh, uh, it's uh, it's designed really for both. Um, or, or it's, it's designed at least, uh, uh, so that we can use, um, what I call classical Byzantine fault tolerant algorithms. So non proof of work, um, consensus algorithms, uh, namely the tender consensus algorithm. Um, it's, it's designed to, um, to, to work in a public setting. Uh, so that's why, uh, it's, it's, it's got various optimizations, like mm. it, uh, splits the block into, into parts and uses, uh, a BitTorrent-like protocol to very quickly propagate it to everyone. It, um, it, it uses a multi-core um, uh, concurrent architecture. Uh, that's why it's implemented in Golang, actually, mm-hmm. so that it's uh, able to quickly gossip uh, the necessary votes to its peers. Um, and so uh, it's designed to work in a public setting, um, uh, although uh, you do need – your application needs to be able to, to – um, uh, handle uh, uh, validator membership changes, right? So Tendermint by itself doesn't know how to mutate the signer set. Um, maybe in the future we'll add that as a module. But uh, right now what it does is it relies on the application to tell Tendermint how to change the set um, of signers and, and, and what their relative voting powers are. Um, uh, so that's one caveat. But as long as we have that, and you get that when you when you build on the Cosmos SDK. The SDK has a staking module, so you can um, uh, create a public blockchain with um, a proof of stake um, security mm. uh, with uh, staking tokens. Um, but uh, you can still use Tendermint in a private setting. So if you just don't want to mutate the set of signers, or if you don't want to use a staking token, but you want to use some kind of permissioned layer where you Maybe there's a whitelist or uh, some other process for determining who the signers are. Then you can do that as well. And um, there's no reason why a, a public system um, uh, uh, like this can't work in a private setting because it doesn't rely on proof of work. So there's no um, security disadvantages. Okay. And let's actually dig into what you do offer to developers because actually – Looking, looking at the list at a top level, and we can talk a little bit more detail about some of them, it looks like you offer some of the things that some other blockchains struggle with a little bit, um, or maybe you just make them easier, I guess. So firstly, um, just looking down the list I can see here, starting with the first one, um, ABCICLI. I mean, I know what a CLI is. But what's an ABCICLI? What's that? Um, uh, so ABCI stands for, 
it's it's a strange acronym. I I think it stands for Application Blockchain Interface, but there are other other interpretations of it as well. It just sounds nice. But uh, it's I think it's the it's the most um, similar analogy might be like CGI between like the Apache web server and uh, WordPress or so. So so Tendermint provides uh, the consensus uh, logic. Um, and once the block is committed, it will push that block and all the transactions to the application uh, via a socket protocol, uh, uh, kind of like CGI does. And, and we call that ABCI. Uh, it uses protobuf underneath um, and it streams the transactions to the application. And uh, what it expects back as a response is um, return codes for each transaction. So um, uh, whether the transaction succeeded or not, as well as uh, a final Merkle hash uh, from the app so that uh, we can do things like Merkle proofs. Um, uh, but in, 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 from a high-level point of view, it's as simple as you, you can think of it as just pushing the block to the app and getting responses back. Okay. And actually, so you very briefly mentioned upon the next uh, feature I was going to ask about there, which is something that some some other blockchains, especially some of the best-known ones, uh, can make difficult if not impossible, but difficult, which is uh, subscribing to events through standard WebSockets, which is obviously something most applications want to do. Um, but some other blockchains like Ethereum make it a little harder or a little non-standard, shall we say, whereas a WebSocket is a very standard way. And I'm, I'm guessing, you already mentioned Protobuf, but I'm guessing the, the WebSocket subscription is pretty much what any developer would expect if they'd used Anything else that use WebSockets? Um, so the the ABCI um, socket connection uh, is is not it's not a WebSocket. It's just a pure. Um, there are two um, implementations. Um, one one is uh, just pure Go, so no socket at all, but just in memory. Another is uh, using TCP/IP without WebSockets, um, and um, uh, 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 so there's a separate RPC system where you can subscribe to WebSockets and listen to events. Um, so, th so that's how a developer should um, interact with the blockchain through uh, Tendermint's RPC system. But this ABCI socket is, uh, is a bit separate. Um, so, like for example, um, mm, yeah, a developer uh, who wishes to develop an application that connects to Tendermint. Um, that blockchain application. Um, number one, it needs to be deterministic. So uh, it needs to be able to come to the exact deterministic same Merkle root based on the previous history of transactions, right? So um, it's it's um, it's a different way of developing um, an application. It's it's not exactly the same as most uh, WebSocket application development. Um, because you you have to be careful about how you handle concurrency and such. Um, I mean, they're, they're, I, the simplest way to develop a Tendermint application is to just not have any concurrency at all and just use like a single thread. Um, uh, uh, and uh, yeah, you're not using WebSockets. You're using um, um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's, an, it's a different kind of um, uh, system. And then if you if you need to listen to events. Uh, uh, that were generated by your application, so uh, as well as events that are generated from within Tendermint, like whether a, you know was a block committed or um, did uh, did this transaction 
you know, uh, did a new transaction go through um, and, and listening to all the return events provided by the application to Tendermint, then you can uh, uh, use a, you can subscribe to a WebSocket onto Tendermint to listen to those. Um, yeah, so there are, are two connections here. One is uh, between Tendermint and the app, uh, the deterministic blockchain app. And then there's another application uh, maybe outside of this blockchain system um, that is ultimately using the blockchain. So uh, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And it also looks like you add some form of, of querying events too. You call it indexing, I guess, maybe in some in SQL type systems, they might call it views. In some other systems, you might call it projections, this ability to be able to uh, sort of pre-create a query on what you're interested in finding out and then subscribing to that filtered uh, feed of events. Is that pretty much correct or have I got that wrong? Um, uh, uh, with MySQL or SQL views. Uh, uh, don't necessarily yeah, pay too yeah. much attention to my analogies, but... <laughs> 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 <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, with um, with Tendermint, you can. Um, oh, every time you process a, a so every time the blockchain application processes a transaction, it can tell Tendermint um, the response code, which is uh, uh, which tells Tendermint like whether it succeeded or not, and if it failed, why, with errors and logs. But the application can also tell Tendermint um, uh, uh, a list of tags, um, and so uh, using these tags. Uh, you can you can search for uh, uh, historical transactions uh, by querying for those tags. So um, it's it's um, it's maybe uh, the initial iteration of an indexing system to make it easy to fetch uh, events, but but I'm sure we'll be uh, continuing to uh, improve that so we can do things like plug in geospatial indexing and such. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, you're adding some some features that especially in a state machine, uh, people will want. But actually, some other blockchains make somewhat hard to to accomplish. So, <laughs> so it's actually, it's, it's a pretty, some pretty useful things to make it much more useful in kind of, in quote marks, standard traditional applications, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. I've, work, I've worked on uh, comparable state machines in, more standard distributed applications and these are the sorts of features that they tend to have so you know they're 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 useful and they're known and they're understandable by developers um and making it quite useful um just so a couple of i just like to have a quick i'm just going to have a quick look down the uh ecosystem page you have because this is obviously lowers the barrier of entry to um any developer interested so your official SDKs are Go or RPC, I guess, and then you have uh, a series of community SDKs that people have contributed, or are there other official SDKs as well? Um, yeah, I think the most uh, fleshed out ones, I guess uh, we can call it official because we're, we're currently most heavily promoting it, is it's Cosmos SDK uh, written in Go. Um, and uh, and that compiles in Tendermint, so it doesn't even use a socket uh, for ABCI. It just uh, uses Go interfaces, um, and it allows you to develop uh, an application in Go. But um, 
There's also Lotion, uh, which is a funny name, but uh, it's a JavaScript-based application that, that works with Tendermint. And uh, yeah, and for, for various languages, people have been developing different uh, bindings to Tendermint. Um, and uh, for anyone uh, who wants to develop different bindings, um, I, I would uh, recommend looking at all the all the, uh, the tooling that we built into the SDK, the, the Cosmos SDK and Go, because um, there are uh, many, many uh, aspects to uh, developing a blockchain application uh, on Tendermint that, that the SDK solves for the user, like things like providing a, a storage system. Um, by the way, the, the storage system in, in, in the Cosmos SDK is great. Um, so like in, in Ethereum, uh, uh, for example, they have a, they have storage, but everything's like 32 by 32. Um, yeah, yeah, and uh, and you can't iterate on um, on the store, so you can't um, iterate sequentially on the key, which makes uh, certain things more inefficient to implement. Whereas um, the storage system in, in Go has uh, it's 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 not based on the Patrice tree, but it's based on uh, a different kind of Merkle tree, we uh, called an AVL tree, and uh, and you're able to uh, iterate. Um, and so we we take advantage of that a lot in in implementing our staking system for the Cosmos Hub, um, and um, yeah, there's just various other uh, hooks and um, and callbacks and, uh, and and things that are uh, that make uh, developing applications very easy in the Cosmos SDK. So actually, just to clarify, because this is a nice transition into kind of my next series of questions, I've heard of Tendermint and I've heard of Cosmos and. So Cosmos is the Tendermint SDK, or is there another Cosmos? And this is a constant point of confusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good point. It is it is a bit confusing um, because um, the project started off as Tendermint, and then um, and then and then we uh, uh, created Cosmos uh, after that. Now, Cosmos is um, it's not just the SDK. Uh, Cosmos is um, it's a concept, mm-hmm. kind of like the World Wide Web. Uh, sorry, Anthony, if, uh, if I cut out there, but Cosmos is uh, it's a concept uh, of, uh, of a network of blockchains, kind of like the World Wide Web is a network of computers. Um, and so what we're doing with Cosmos is creating um, interoperable communication protocols between blockchains uh, in, in the sense uh, of maybe sidechains, except um, we're not using proof of work. Uh, but uh, because everything is using uh, uh, Byzantine fault tolerant consensus algorithms, namely currently Tendermint, uh, it makes uh, it makes this um, uh, cross-chain communication much more efficient. So, uh, in other words, uh, for two blockchains to communicate to each other securely, uh, what you really need is uh, for each blockchain to be a light client of the other. So um, you need to be able to submit a transaction onto one blockchain that tells the blockchain that uh, something happened on the source blockchain. You need to be able to prove to the destination, the target blockchain, that the source committed a block hash, and you need to be able to provide a Merkle proof or some proof that there's something in there in the state um, that, um, that is intended to be sent to the target blockchain. And so, um, so uh, we call this uh, IBC or inter-blockchain uh, communication, uh, which is kind of analogous to uh, TCP/IP. Uh, in fact, uh, it's, it's, there are many similarities. Uh, for one, where uh, it's based on like sequential packet um, uh, communication, 
uh, and it's being implemented uh, right now. Uh, it's, it's our current focus. But the idea, uh, so, so the idea with Cosmos is that it's a, it's a network of blockchains. Uh, the reason why we want a network of blockchains is so that um, uh, we can scale the, uh, the, the cryptocurrency and public blockchain uh, and public and private blockchain system. Um, so, for example, um, through uh, such a network, um, similar to uh, the, the Bitcoin sidechain concept, uh, you can you can move tokens from one blockchain to another via two-way pegging, uh, which is a form of uh, uh, a locking of tokens or collateralization. Um, and um, so you can use the same token in different blockchains, uh, and, and you know, so you can move your your pegged ether, say, to uh, a uh, zero knowledge blockchain, and uh, and do something there, and move it out, uh, move it to another blockchain that might offer a different kind of virtual machine than the EVM, and so on. In this way, um, you know, we can scale uh, the uh, the cryptocurrency uh, ecosystem and, and experience. Um, so that's Cosmos. Um, we uh, just last week we launched the Cosmos Hub, um, and and that is a blockchain built on the Cosmos SDK, um, uh, whose uh, primary purpose is to connect to many other blockchains, um, especially those developed on the Cosmos SDK, but also in Lotion and other frameworks. Uh, uh, and it's it's intended to function as uh, as as kind of a common uh, custodian or a common hub. Um, so its job is to keep track of how many tokens are on each connected blockchain, right? So it's, um, it's the beginning of a scaling and interoperability solution for the uh, public blockchain space. That's Cosmos. And, um, and, uh, we, and, and the Cosmos SDK, you know, we call it the Cosmos SDK because uh, we really want to uh, start promoting the, uh, the Cosmos network. And uh, if you build your application on the SDK, then you can, you'll be able to simply import the IBC module and connect it to Cosmos Hub. Um, so it's the easiest way um, to develop an application today that will uh, be um, compatible with uh, the, um, the, the entire Cosmos ecosystem. Okay. And so just to clarify that, both Sendermint and Cosmos are pretty much worked on by the same team, or is it two separate teams, or...? I mean, they're both fairly large projects, so <laughs> by the sounds of them, anyway. Yeah, um, it, 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 it is um, currently, but um, uh, but uh, it's you know we don't we don't intend to to remain the only um, maintainers or the the primary um, the implementers. There's actually two um, two entities involved here. One is um, Tendermint Inc. Um, uh-huh. It's a Delaware C corp. Um, and it's um, it's the primary software um, provider for the foundation um, called the Interchain Foundation, based in uh, Switzerland, mm-hmm. um, which is uh, which was responsible for the fundraiser, and its, its mission is to promote the Cosmos network. Um, but uh, so they're two very closely related entities, uh, but separate independent entities, mm-hmm. and. Um, we're we're working with uh, now many other companies to develop IBC, mm-hmm. and um, and Lotion is is a different entity entirely, yep. and, and all of these different frameworks are, yeah. are designed by different companies. So we really want to make what you want really for for maximum scalability in the non-blockchain sense. That's what you need. You, if you're always the only maintainers, then it's going to be very hard to 
keep going at a at a, a rate you want to forever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We want to make uh, we want Tendermint and uh, and the SDK to be like bizarre projects, kind of like the Linux kernel and and the Linux ecosystem. So yeah, that's what exactly. We want. Yeah. So, um, I guess we're having this conversation a oh no, not even a five days after a reasonably positive announcement. Um, for some reason, I thought it was a month ago, but no, it's only five days ago. Uh, you just raised a Series A round as well. Yeah, yeah? that's right. Yeah, um, you, sounded, you almost sounded surprised by that. <laughs> Did we? Oh, yeah. Um, so... No, we definitely did. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. So um, actually, I want to dive to a latter part of this announcement before we go back to the main part. Um, and the, the blog post you have that announces it calls out two particular use cases, um, a DEX uh, with Binance um, and an ID project with the national Thai government, I guess. Um, which are quite different from each other. I mean, which is interesting because so many of the of the, of the really practical blockchain use cases are always currency based, which is fine, but you know, not always the most interesting. So something like an ID project is also quite interesting. Um, oh, and also a, a ticketing payment application. I just noticed that. Sorry. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, are these, are any of these projects in production yet or are they in late stage POCs or how, how are those projects kind of going and how's the experience been with them? Um, so, uh, the national, um, ID project, uh, in, in, in Thailand is, um, uh, it's been in development for a while. I believe they're in, um, uh, a, a, uh, a beta um, test net. Um, the intent there is to is to go live and deploy it nationally, but um, they're um, uh, they're not you know nationally deployed yet. But um, that's where they're going. Um, and yeah, it, it's it's not a currency project, but uh, uh, the idea um, and the intent of Cosmos uh, Network and with IBC is to make it um, useful not just for tokens but also you know um, general purpose message transfers so um, uh, we're not focusing on this right now but you know in the future uh, and very soon as soon as that DIBC module is out uh, you can use it for things like cross chain smart contract calls but you know uh, for for any other deed really um, and uh, uh, that ID project isn't built on the SDK, uh, but um, uh, nevertheless, uh, you can still uh, create uh, IBC compatibility with other frameworks. So that's where they're going. So eventually, uh, they will connect to the Cosmos Hub as well, um, and 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 use the Cosmos Hub for uh, other other features besides token transfers. Or maybe they'll use it for token transfers too. That's not clear yet. And, and I'm guessing that's kind of with the intention of something like the Estonian ID card where you could use your identity to access multiple services, something like that, or? Um, I'm not, I, I can't answer much on, um, on the uh, exact use yeah. case of the sure. yeah, application, but I imagine so. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I mean, 9 million is, is a, is a reasonable amount. I'm not sure how big your team is to, to know how thinly that spread out, but 
with with that, what's what's now on the roadmap for the next six months, a year, etc. Mm. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's nine mil for um, for for the uh, Tenement Inc. Uh, but um, both um, both the uh, uh, Tenement Inc. Delaware C Corp. as well as the foundation also has uh, um, uh, Adam tokens, which are mm-hmm. the native staking token of the Cosmos SDK, and uh, and the foundation has, um, has funds from the uh, 2017 fundraiser too. Mm-hmm. So. We're uh, we're not thinly spread out. We're we're okay. <laughs> I mean, in but, terms uh, of more, just if you had like three hundred staff or something. <laughs> oh no, no, we're we're actually a pretty small team. So um, we're uh, just thirty five people. Okay. And uh, sorry, what was your question? You so, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the immediate next step is uh, to we've just started. Uh, we kicked off the uh, IBC uh, uh, process. So uh, uh, if you go to github.com slash cosmos slash ICS, um, uh, there's uh, ongoing work there on specifying um, the uh, IBC protocol. And um, so we'll be working there on GitHub. Um, and and that's, our, that's our primary focus now is, is getting uh, IBC guide. And that'll take um, uh, about a quarter or three months or so, um, hopefully less. Um, and after that, um, there's plenty of other things to do, so we need to. We still need to implement state syncing uh, for Tenement. So that means uh, uh, being able to, you know, not uh, have to download the entire blockchain, but to just sync the, uh, the state. Um, and, uh, uh, and 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 then the next step would be building bridges to uh, other blockchains. So um, uh, you, you can't use IBC as we will specify it to connect to. Uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum and other proof-of-work networks because those don't use uh, classical BFT consensus. But um, so we have to create a, an adapter layer. So we'll, we'll be working on that, and um, and then uh, we'll be working on uh, helping partners so that they can build their own application and uh, grow out this Cosmos network. Um, and you've also just uh, launched Mainnet. Which actually can take some blockchain projects a surprisingly long time. I mean, launching onto mainnet or launching your own mainnet. Um, what? How long did you spend on testnet, and what are some of the learnings you've taken to that mainnet launch that you that surprised you? Didn't surprise you? Mm. Um, good question. So. Uh, you know, it's it's been a long time coming. So uh, yeah, I didn't think it would um, take um, years, but that's how long it took. Um, I mean, Tendermint, Tendermint, um, even even Tendermint started off as um, uh, originally a public blockchain project that later became an agnostic, like a general purpose uh, consensus engine. Um, so in a sense, it's been it's been four and a half years coming, <laughs> but. Uh, but the Cosmos concept only started around uh, early 2017 or late 2016, and um, uh, the latest testnet uh, was uh, we call it um, the game of stakes, um, and that was uh, an incentivized testnet. It was the first time we really used Tendermint in a public setting with uh, with uh, over 100 active validators. So um, at one point there were 200 validators and uh, that was pretty exciting to see because I don't think uh, a classical, uh, uh, pure classical BFT engine um, or, or consensus algorithm had been used in that kind of setting before. So it was exciting to see that. Um, 
uh, what I learned is that uh, when there's uh, excitement from uh, the community on um, such a system, then uh, they they start helping each other to um, to 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 get everyone up to speed. So and and then the the network starts to take a life of its own. So it was very exciting to see uh, everyone help each other and 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 very quickly learn the ropes, even though the software isn't completely polished yet. Right. So it's great to see that. Um, what else? Uh, we've learned that. Uh, it's it's uh, the software is uh, reasonably robust, so it's exciting to see that the uh, the test uh, the the main net is still going live and strong. Um, but uh, I'm sure we have a lot more uh, lessons to learn. So, uh, uh, we'll we'll find out uh, where, uh, when we encounter more fires, which I'm sure will happen. <laughs> Uh, that all sounded very positive. So I'm now going to ask one final question, which is often the could take the wind out of your sails. It's sometimes the the negative question for a lot of blockchain projects. So you mentioned a lot Let's of positives there, but apart from the test projects, um, how how many applications are are running uh, on Tendermint networks right now? Or I guess I guess the caveat there being you've only just launched a mainnet. And probably you weren't encouraging people to develop production applications on a test net, but are there many? Are many people building applications to run on Tendermint? Yeah, um, there's there's quite a lot actually. We find out about uh, most of the applications um, like some sometime you know after um, we, uh, someone you know gives us a hint or something you know, that they're using Tendermint. So. Um, for example, like Loom um, has um, has a deployment, a production deployment using Tendermint, um, uh, but that's just one example. I and mean, there's Iris, um, which is uh, 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 a, it's a microservices directory um, that launched uh, just before the Cosmos Hub launched in uh, based in uh, Hong Kong in Asia, um, and. Uh, uh, there's you know various other applications uh, that are live as well. That was my interview with Jaquan of Tendermint. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed the interview and the links. You can find out more on previous episodes at christianjiller.com slash podcast, where you can also at slash support, buy merchandise, make donations, all those wonderful things. There is a newsletter connected with this show at slash newsletters. Uh, and I will be releasing a new newsletter, mostly automated, but created by me and a couple of other people on ethics and technology very, very soon. So keep an eye on the newsletters page to see that. I'm also recording the first episode of my new show, The Enthusiastic Amateur, next week. That might take a little bit of time for production, but keep an eye out for that on the podcast page too. The first episode will be about computer history. I'm going to be speaking to the creator of the 2-Bit blog, and we are going to be digging into computing history and what you need to know to win over dinner parties. <laughs> Finessing the tagline, but that's kind of roughly the idea. I would love to hear from you. Please rate, review, share the show, and let me know if you have any thoughts or questions at Chris Chinch on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on the Facebook page, wherever you found this show. And yet again, if you have been, thank you very much for listening.